Good morning, everyone. Hey, we did our sound. Looks like it went okay this time. That's good. We got a couple of scripture readings to come up. We'll see if we can keep our, uh, our good streak going. Welcome back to our Revelation series. I, like Jake, sure miss having you guys here. This is a weird chunk of stuff to talk about with only about six or seven people in the building. Uh, I did have a really good um, idea come across my texting last night from Glenn Ogren, and he said, since we're getting the sermon outline on Friday in the email, you should host the competition and let people guess to fill in the blanks, and whoever gets the most blanks right should get a free chocolate bar. So we're going to start that competition this next week. You can fill in the blank ahead of time, email it to me before Sunday morning, before the service starts. And uh, the most accurate will get a chocolate bar of their choice. I'm also going to add to that the most creative uh, attempt at filling in the blanks will get a chocolate bar of their choice. But you need to let me know if you're trying to be creative or you're trying to be accurate when the email comes in. So um, that's, that's for next week. You'll get your email on Friday. Fill in the blanks. Take a guess and let's see where we're going. Also, I just want to remind you of the three rules for Revelation number one. For a moment, let go of previous ideas of what Revelation might be. You can pick them up again later, but just keep an open mind as we're going through this. Number two, read it out loud and read it a lot so you can hear it. And number three, tell somebody else what you're thinking, seeing, learning, or hearing. This, this whole book in Greek is called the Apocalypse, the Apocalypsis, which means the unveiling or the revelation of Jesus and, and a couple weeks ago, we saw it was a message to specific churches about what they were living through at that moment, that God was with them. He was not surprised by events. And, and then last week, we, we realized that this unveiling gives us a, an ability to see beyond our current events, our current experiences. We looked through that, this open door last week, right, to take a, pick, a peek at what, what's behind in the throne room of heaven, what's actually going on. And we saw the slain lamb who was worthy to take and open the seals and that those seals would unleash the plan of God uh, for the destiny of the world. Now this week, we're going to see what happens as that scroll is open. But before we do that, I want to start with first some big picture items. Some big picture items. This, one of the things about Revelation is there's, you have to do a lot of teaching with it. And I'm going to quickly, hopefully, give you four uh, things that you need to keep in mind as we go through it. Um, I, I've sent these out on a, a PDF that Reed's going to pull up just a quick picture. If you didn't get these or would like a copy of this, uh, feel free to email the office and we'll send it to you. But the first one has to do with what we call the chiastic structure. There's a Jewish way of writing, a literary method uh, called a chiasm. Now, we all have literary structures. When you went to school, you learned how to write a five-paragraph theme. You do the introduction, you do your three points, you do a closing, or we learned how to build a linear argument where you state your case and then you make your point, and at the end you say, see, I was right. We do that all the time. Well, chiasm was a way that Jewish writers would do the same thing. It was a flow that everybody recognized, and it was... It was uh, a way of moving to the central message of what they were writing in the center. And the beginning would echo the end, the second part would echo, echo the next to the last part, and then the third, the next to the last, and then right in the center of the book or the letter was the focus. And that's, you'll see that on the chart, that that's exactly uh, the, the way I think that Revelation is structured. The, the heart of the book is in the middle, from 11 verse 19 to 15 verse 4. So take some time to look that over. 
Another thing I want you to see is on that other PDF that I call the rhythm of the sevens. You may have realized there are seven, seven shows up a lot in, in Revelation. There are seven seals, which lead to seven trumpets, and they're followed by seven bowls of wrath. Now, the, the second PDF, uh, I want you to see they all come in a similar way. In all of those three sets of seven, the first four are like boom, 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 rapid fire. Then number five and six are a little, little more detailed, a little slower. And then there's a long pause. A vision or something happens and then you get the seventh one and the seventh one always is followed by an action in heaven by lightning by thunder and by an earthquake there's a rhythm to these sevens and I'm trying to get you to, to see these things so that you can have some hooks to hang the book on and understand how it fits together the third thing I would say is has to do with the use of numbers we tend to be very literal when it comes to numbers and and that's not always the way it was with people uh, of the first century. Uh, for some numbers in Revelation, it's pretty easy to, to, to interpret them literally. Seven churches or 144,000 people or 12 elders, four creatures. But there's others that it's not so easy about when it says there's seven spirits before the throne and there's beasts with ten heads or seven heads and seven eyes on each head. Lamb with, the lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. It, 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 it gets weird. So one of the things you have to realize is you need to approach the numbers in Revelation consistently. Either they are statistics or literal numbers or they're symbols. It's hard to think that they can be both. And so I tend to choose, and this is me choosing. Remember, you're laying down your, your idea for a while. You can keep it if you want it and pick it back up later. But what, the way I'm approaching it is that unless there's a really strong case to believe otherwise, all the numbers in Revelation are symbolic of something instead of trying to be just accurate statistics. That's my rule of thumb. Last thing I'll, I'll say as we head into it is, is we need to touch on a word that has a lot of meaning for a lot of people in a lot of different ways. It comes up in our text today in chapter 7, verse 14, and that's the Greek word thlipsis, T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S. -I, -I, I do not have a lisp. That's just how you say it, thlipsis. And it's in chapter 7, verse 14. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation, the great thlipsis, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That word tribulation. Now, many of you and many people around the world, when they hear the word tribulation in the book of Revelation, they think of a seven-year period between the rapture of the church and the millennial kingdom of Christ. And what I want to say to you is that is not the way the word is being used in the text here. Because that word thlipsis occurs all through Revelation several other times. In chapter 1, verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion in the thlipsis, in the suffering and the kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Christ Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's not talking about a future period. He's talking about where he is right now in the tribulation, in the thlipsis. Uh, it's literally, thlipsis literally means pressure when two things collide. The, the best picture is, is tectonic plates uh, as they push against each other and cause earthquakes. That's thlipsis, this pressure that mounts and explodes into, that, that's, what, that's what the word means. He says it again when he writes to the churches in Revelation 2, 9 and 10. I know your thlipsis, your afflictions, your current things and your poverty. And yet you're rich. And he goes down further in verse 10. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer thlipsis, translated there, persecution for, for 10 days. Be faithful 
even to the point of death. It's the same word. When he writes with that word, he's not talking about a future period. He's talking about what they're going through right now. So, now we're going to read the text. And I want you to remember, uh, we, we've got two volunteers, Darren and Karen Bonikowski, are going to read for us. We're going to read it in two sections. We're going to read 6, 1 to 17 and 8, 1 to 5. And then later we'll come back and Karen will read chapter 7 for us. But as Darren reads this first section, I want you to remember those sevens, four come rapid fire, then five and six, slow down a bit. And then there's a break, which is what Karen will read later. And then Darren will pick up number seven at the end in chapter eight with uh, the action in heaven and the thunder and lightning and the earthquake. So I'll turn it over to Darren. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following closely behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer, until the number of their fellow servants and brothers, who were to be killed as they had been, was completed. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth, as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll, rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave, and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel, who had a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer, with the prayers of all the saints, on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hand. 
Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Thanks a lot, Darren. Now, at home, I know that's quiet. You've got to realize we're finding if we send it out too loud, it distorts it on Facebook. So you can turn it up loud on your TV, or you can also just open the scripture and read along with that when Karen does it next. But thanks a lot, Darren, for reading that. The thing I want you to see and the premise that underlies the way that I see these seven seals is that they are reality, not judgment, and consequences not punishment. As the Lamb opens these seven seals of the scroll, we see what happens when the kingdom of God collides with the current power structures of the world. It's, it's not judgment or punishment. Uh, it's, it's the reality or the consequences of the way the world has chosen to live, right? If, if I touch a burning stove, it's not punishment that I hurt. It's just a reality. It's a consequence of my actions. And what I think the seven seals are, 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 are the consequences of the way we live opposed to the destiny that God has for the world. And one of the reasons I think this way is because it's got to do with the word come. You notice that in the first four seals, they're linked with the four creatures that we saw in the throne room. These creatures that represent creation. Remember we talked about the four corners of the earth, north, south, east, west. Th this idea that these four creatures represent all of creation. And as each seal is opened, one of the creatures says the same thing. They say, come. And you've got to ask, who are they saying come to? I know for my whole life, I thought for, for many years, they're saying come to the horsemen because they say come and this horseman comes out, these four horsemen. But, but as you begin to read the whole book, you realize the only people that the creatures ever address in the book of Revelation, the only person is God. They never talk to anybody else other than God any other time that they speak. And also that word come, it, it, it's all about what God is actually doing, not what the horsemen are doing, but what God is doing. In the first chapter, he's coming on the clouds. All the seven letters talk about Christ's coming. And in the very end, chapter 22, three times, I am coming soon, it says. And so when we look at the role that creation plays, remember in, in Romans 8, verses 19 to 22, it says the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. And what I think is happening as these four creatures representing creation say, come, is they're saying to God, come. If, if you read the Lord's Prayer in Greek, that second petition, we always say, your, your kingdom come. In Greek, it literally says, come, your kingdom. And it's a command, come, your kingdom. And I think that's what the creatures are saying. It's less about God's judgment on the world than it is about what actually happens as the kingdom of God begins to overcome and overtake the world. And we're going to move through the seven seals, and we're going to do it way too quickly. This is way too much ground to cover in one sermon but we're going to do it anyway, or I'm going to do it. You can fasten your seatbelt. In, in verse 1, creation calls, come. And then we see in verse 2, a rider on a white horse, a crown given to him, and he's bent on conquest. Now, some people say this rider is Jesus, right? Because in Revelation 19, there's a white horse 
Jesus is riding on it. And maybe it is. Jesus riding forth to conquer the world with the power of the gospel. Maybe, but, but I don't think it is because it's, the lamb is the one actually opening the seals, right? And, and it, it's very different vision here from chapter 19. It says he was given a crown like all the others were given a crown. And it's just not this picture of Jesus. And, it, and conquest, he was bent on conquest, kind of flies in the face of this picture of the lamb who was slain. And that Greek word conquest in the book of Revelation is always used about the beasts. It's never used about the Son of Man. That, that unless, you know, other than this time, we don't know. But it's always addressed, it's always a beast is trying to conquest, to conquer. And the point of the whole thing is that the lamb is the one who's worthy. He's already overcome. He doesn't need to conquer anymore. And so I think in seal number one, what we see is religiously motivated conquest. Now, I know you're thinking that that's almost non-existent in the world today, right? That you're supposed to laugh. That's what I'm missing, right? This religiously motivated war and conquest is no, yeah, it's, it's everywhere. And the idea here is that when the kingdoms collide, there is one who appears to be messianic, one on a white horse, and yet his focus is conquest, or a better word would be power and control. And throughout history, we've seen that, this religiously motivated conquest. Christians have never done that. Uh, but, but it's all throughout, I'm just, that's again, very facetious, right? When the kingdom of God comes to the world, there are always people that want to emphasize kingdom and de-emphasize God. They want it to be about their grasping of power. That's what happens when kingdoms collide. And Jesus said one of the signs of the end of the age would be these false messiahs that would come. It's a reality that we live with today, a Christianity bent on conquest and not on sacrificial love. The lion without the lamb. One of my frustrations as I watch the U.S. church from north of the border, and the Canadian church struggles with it too, but it seems like so many people in the U.S. church can't comprehend what it's like to be the church unless they have political power. And yet the church started with no political power. You know, culture says seize power and control and use it for good purposes. Conquer the evil. But, but every time we've tried to conquer evil, it just seems to multiply. And so it's only natural that when the second creature says, come, what we see in verse 4 is this other horse coming out, a fiery red one. Its rider given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. And to him was given a large sword. Now this one's a bit easier to understand. Seal number two is the presence of war. People that study this kind of thing say that in the last 3,452 years, there have only been 268 years without war. That means for every 13 years of war, or for every one year of peace we've had, there were 13 years of war going on in the world. And I don't have to tell you about war. The physical loss of life is horrible, but the psychological aftermath of training people to go and kill each other it, it, it just it hurts us for generation after generation. But when kingdoms collide, when evil takes its last stand, it wants to take out as many people as it can. And so the third creature cries, come. Verse 5 and 6, I looked. There before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. I heard, a sound that sounded like, I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures, a quart of wheat for a day's wages, three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. And what is that? Well, uh, 
the, the wheat and the barley is one day's provision. And so what it's saying there is to, to get what you need to eat for a day, it takes a day's work. When kingdoms collide, you can expect seal number three, that there'll be famine and economic injustice. You know, I've been thinking a lot about Guatemala as we, you know, we've, we've planned a trip there. We don't know if it's going to be happening or not. But I just remember sitting there with people who make $5 a day for 10 hours of labor. I remember talking to a guy who used to walk two hours to work and two hours back because the bus ride would have cost him 50 cents and he can't afford to spend 10% of his day's wage riding to work. You know, you look at the, 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 the world, and I, I just Googled the figure this morning. that It's estimated by the World Health Organization that 21,000 people starve to death every single day. That means during the course of this sermon, 450 people. The reality is we live in this world where the economic powers, and, and there is this, this injustice, this, this famine. And the idea here is not so much scarcity. There's still oil and there's still wine, but the person in charge of it is saying, okay, here's what you get, a day's wages for a day's supply, but don't mess with my oil or my wine. It's inequity. The wealthy can still get what they want, but the poor suffer. There are millions in our world today who have no access to clean water, and it's estimated that if we just spent $20 billion in the world, we could get clean water to every single person in the world. That's approximately how much U.S. and Canada spend on cosmetics every year. So you just think about the injustice. When kingdoms collide, religion is used for conquest, and, and there's, there's war rampant and hunger and economic justice. And then the fourth creature says, come. And in verse 8, there's a pale horse, its rider's name Death, and Hades is following close behind him. See, all these things, seal number four says, all this leads to death. The, the word translated pale is, is a color that would be like a yellowy green. Um, and, and the reality is the fruit of the structures of the world lead to death. There's conquest, there'll be war, there's economic oppression, hungering and suffering, and there will be death. And then Hades, the grave, rides along behind, scooping up the dead. It's, it's the reality of the world. See, that's, that's what we're saying is as the kingdom of God comes, the structures of the world collapse because of the pressure. But, but what we see is just people fighting against it and creating all of these problems. But, but this is where the good news comes in, right? Um, what about those people who follow Jesus? They live happily ever after, right? Verses 9 to 11, the fifth seal. And he opened the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They cried out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? See, seal five is suffering for Christ followers. It only makes sense. People who live a life of sacrificial love in this kind of world suffer for it. They do not come out on top. Others take advantage of them. See, that's why it's tempting, I think, to follow the, the religiously motivated conquest path because it makes life better for us. We want power and control and comfort. And yet this is the revelation of Jesus. And if his listeners take it seriously, the reality we face is going to be thlipsis. It's going to be this tribulation as we live it out. And, and when I'm talking, please, when I'm talking about tribulation and suffering as a church, I don't mean not being able to say Merry Christmas at your job. Okay? Uh, let, let's, 
the, one of the things is we think the tribulation is in the future because we don't see what's going on around the world. I, I have a letter here. I'm not going to read it, but it was sent to my brother years ago when he was in Egypt from a, from a convert who had been, his parents had been called out and, and said, your son is studying to be a Christian pastor and he's proselytizing. And, and if things, we know you're a good Muslim family and we want you to stop. We want you to stop him. And he was, he, he went home and his parents called his brothers together and confronted him with this. And he talked about how scared he was. And a friend of his called and said, they've come to my work too. And I had to sneak out the back. And, and, and he ends the letter. He says to my brother, Mike, I'm very worried. I don't know what to do. This time is the most serious time as they wanted me and my friend both. I don't know what to do. Please tell me. Give me your advice before I decide anything. Waiting for your reply very soon. See, that's, that's the struggling that goes on when kingdoms collide. How long? How long? And then the sixth seal is the implosion of creation. You've got this vivid imagery, especially lots of it taken from Isaiah and Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Uh, the creation all falls apart. The day of the Lord comes and things get so bad that even the powerful will realize they've made a mistake. They'll seek death in order to avoid what they see coming. You see, what, what you see here is God is fully removing his hand from creation. Back in Revelation 4.11, the creature said, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. By your will they were created and have their being. But now he's, holding, he's, he's taking his hand back. He's not sustaining creation and it's imploding. And, and the question is, the last verse of chapter 6 says... For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Well, the answer to that question comes in chapter 7. But I don't want to jump to that yet. Karen's going to read it in a minute until we see the seventh seal in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Now, there's this fascinating idea in some rabbinic tradition. You know how these religious ideas take a life of their own. Like for example, we would say God helps those who help themselves. That's, that, that, that's not biblical, not even really good teaching. But people think that and they believe that. Well, there was a rabbinic idea kind of like that that said the angels only sing in heaven at night. And, and all day long heaven is quiet because God needs to hear the prayers of his people. And it's interesting when you think about that idea that, that would have been prevalent in many Jewish heads at that time. And you see that when the seventh seal is open, there is silence. And, and verses two to five, these trumpets that are warnings, that are alarms, something's coming, these judgments that are coming, and something causes them to begin in verse four. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. Actually, in each seal, someone is praying to God. The, the creatures say, come, come, come. The, the, the saints who've been martyred say, how long? And even the people who, who aren't following God, who are resisting him, cry out and say, who can stand, right? There's this prayer. And then here in the last seal, when it's open, we see the prayers going up to heaven. And that brings in the judgments, which we'll start on next week on the seven trumpet. Seal seven is God responds. The seven seals are not judgments. They're the reality of what's current, currently taking place. And it's under the limiting control of God, the Lamb who sits on the throne. It's Him who opens the seals. And John describes what his listeners are living through. And as they pray to God, eventually here come the trumpets. Now the judgment is going to start coming. Creation is, is groaning. The saints are crying out, how long? And judgment will come. But, but before we get there, let's get back to that question. Who can stand? 
and Karen's going to read chapter 7 to us. After this, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Then it lists the 12 tribes, specifying 12,000 from each tribe. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory, and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they, and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Thanks a lot, Karen. What we see here, and this is where I want to end today, because this is where we are. We are in the middle of all the reality that's happening as people resist and oppose the kingdom of God. And what chapter 7 is, is a vision of hope as kingdoms collide. Between the sixth and the seventh seal, we're given this vision of hope. And some people will tell you it's two visions. I don't think so. Jake made a really good point about that this week in his video. In verse 4, it says, I heard, and it lists all the 12,000 from each tribe. And some people say that's one vision where he sees 144,000 people from the tribes of Israel. And then there's another vision where he sees all the saints around the throne. But, but it follows that same pattern that we saw in chapter 4. I heard, do not weep. The lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. I heard that, and then I looked, I saw the lamb. And the same thing happens here. I heard the number of the people and then I saw a multitude that couldn't even be counted. And this is a reminder to us in this time of tribulation that the collision of kingdoms around us may, challenge, may change the circumstances, but that we as followers of the lamb are safe within the protection 
of the Lamb of God. Nothing can separate us from Jesus, that the kingdom of God is the safest place to be when the world around us is falling apart. See, the focal point of this vision of hope is the people of the Lamb. Both at the beginning, these, these people that are going to be marked with the seal and the people around the throne, they're all the people of the Lamb. And it's answering the question at the end of chapter 6, who can stand? And John gets this vision of exactly who can stand. You can stand. I can stand. While the people living by the kingdom and the values of the world are crying out for the mountains to fall upon them, you and I as believers in Jesus can stand. And it has to do with the actions of God in verses 1 to 4. This seal. These people are known by the seal of God on their foreheads. What is the seal? Well, I'm going to tell you the people of the Lamb are sealed by the Spirit. Now, there have been a lot of ideas floated here about this seal. But I want to read you three verses from the New Testament. They all would have been familiar to the people reading or hearing this text. And they're the only times outside Revelation that that word seal is used in the entire, Old Test- in the entire New Testament. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. Now it's God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. And then Ephesians 4.30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You see, what's happening here is, is the people of God are being protected by being given the seal of the Holy Spirit. I've, I've talked before about how in the Old Testament, God was out there. And then in the Gospels, we see God with us in the incarnation. And then in the church, we see God within us as the Spirit moves into our lives, as the Spirit empowers us to follow Christ, as the Spirit teaches us and guides us into all truth. And that... John is saying through the vision to the people is the spirit is the one thing that keeps you safe as the world falls apart. What we see here is God is claiming those people who are his. He's marking them with his spirit. And, and I want you to realize the reason I think there's the two angles of the vision is it's, it's the people of the lamb marked by the spirit on both sides of death. It's where the two sides of the vision come in. In the midst of the thlipsis, in the midst of the tribulation, we see them marked. And and let me clarify something here. I'm saying, again, the tribulation is what the people are going through right as these seals are being opened. In fact, I'm not saying it. John's saying it, right? Remember back in chapter 1, verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering, in the thlipsis, in the tribulation. John is with them. In this kingdom, he's with them in the suffering and tribulation and he's living in patient endurance and he's telling these believers that they can stand during the tribulation because they have the spirit in them, even if they die. Even if they die. Look at verses 13 to 17 of chapter 7. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? And I answered, sir, you know. And he said, they are the, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation, the mega flipsis is the Greek phrase there. 
They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, John's saying, guys, I know you're struggling, but you're marked with a seal. And even if they kill you, this is what awaits. That, that God will spread his tent over you, that you will be with him, that you'll never again hunger or thirst, and he will wipe every tear away from your eyes. See, that's, that's the thing about being a believer in Jesus, is there's no fear on either side of death. M- many people I've walked with through, through a, a terminal illness, and, and the reality of, of faith is even in that, we don't have to be afraid, even if death comes, which it does. It doesn't take the fact that we're marked with the seal of the Spirit, that, we're, that God's children are victorious on both sides of death. The followers of Jesus need to know that they're marked with the Spirit, that they're safe no matter what is thrown at them. And that's what he's saying to these seven churches. As the world falls apart, as the seals are opened, as you see war and famine and injustice and even religiously motivated war, as you wonder how long, how long, and as even the people who are benefiting from the system realize it's all falling apart and the wrath of the Lamb is coming, in all of that, he says, you're safe. Let me just close reading you Romans chapter 8, 31 to 38. Because this is Paul writing the same thing that's being written here, just with a different, different spin on it. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen, whom God has sealed? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all the day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. God, in chapter 6, we see such a picture of our world. it, It is more visible ever because of the pandemic, how our systems are falling apart, how we, the things that we counted on to make us strong just don't hold us up. How our, our science and our technology can be brought to its knees by a little tiny virus. And yet, God, we, we want to confess today that as, as followers of the Lamb who are marked by the Spirit of God, we are safe on both sides of death. That there is nothing a pandemic can take away from us. There is nothing suffering and persecution can take away from us because nothing will separate us from the love of God. We thank you for this table we come to today to remember that very fact. In Jesus' name, amen. Very often on uh, Facebook or on the internet, you see such and such, Mark safe from this hurricane or Mark safe from this earthquake. And I, I just want to say today, we as the church 
of, of Jesus Christ, as the body of Christ. We're, we're separated by physical distance, but we're united by Christ, and we're marked safe by the Spirit of God. And I want you, as you go throughout this week, whatever struggles you encounter, I want you to remember that. And I want you to hear the words from Hebrews 13 as God's blessing on you this week. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may this God of peace equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.